Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. This whole series is about discipleship. And when Chris asked me last year to pick any disciple of my choice, it did not take long for me to land on probably my most favorite disciple, of course, that's who I'm gonna choose to speak on, Simon Peter. Although every disciple carries with them an amazing testimony of God's goodness and grace, Simon Peter for me was the perfect example of an imperfect disciple. Someone who stuffs up continually, makes mistakes, but is still drawn closer to God. For those of you who don't know, Simon, well, actually we we refer to him as Peter, but he wasn't always called Peter. He was born Simon, which is why in some circumstances you hear Simon Peter. He was born Simon, and for uh, he could be described as um, a knucklehead, outspoken, a misfit. He was sometimes arrogant, he was disrespectful, and he was even timid. At sometimes he was self-seeking, while at other times he was self-sacrificing. At sometimes he was spiritually perceptive, and at other times he was very slow to understand, which is probably why I relate to him so well. In his first encounter with Jesus, he is renamed. He's, he's out fishing and his brother Andrew comes to him and he's like, man, I've, I've met the Messiah. I've met the one they call Jesus. And he convinces Simon to come along with him and meet him. And before Andrew can even introduce Simon, before Andrew can even say, hey, Jesus, this is the one, this is my brother. You know, I, I, I'd met you earlier. This is now my brother. I just want to introduce him. I just want him to get to know you. Before any pleasantries can be made, Jesus turns to Simon and says, you are Simon, you shall be called Cephas. In that very first encounter, Simon is renamed. How interesting it is that Jesus called him by his name, by what he was known in his community, and then renamed him by his calling. Cephas is Aramaic and means Peter, which can be translated as a rock, someone who is firm, steady, and immovable unto death. It's a powerful reminder that God does not hold on to the names and labels bestowed upon you by your friends, by those who dislike you, by even sometimes your family members. Sometimes we can get so latched on to the names and labels that people give us, lazy, procrastinator, stupid, silly, boring. We can get so latched onto these that they begin to become a part of who we are. And if only I can just get out of that state of mind, then maybe God can use me. If only I can stop being lazy, then God can call me into whatever purpose he has for me. But Jesus in that first encounter calls him by what he has known. Without Simon having to change anything, without Simon having to prepare and get something sorted in his life first, Jesus calls him by what he has known and then renames him by his calling. And it's a powerful reminder that when we come to Jesus, we don't need to get anything sorted in our lives. If only I can get a little bit more comfortable, then God can use me. 
If only I can get a little bit more financially secure, then God can use me. If only I can have my family in order, then God can use me. But in just this very, just a simple one line, Jesus demonstrates that he calls you as you are known and then he renames you how God sees you. And then as Simon is about to find out, after that happens, he then prepares you for that calling. But that's not what I want to speak about tonight. That was just, you know. And over the next three years, Peter becomes an intense follower of Jesus. He's so much so, he becomes part of the inner circle for, for just a select few disciples. And, and he proves himself to be a natural born leader. In a way, he became the spokesperson for the 12 disciples. If ever there was something that needed to be clarified, if ever there was something that needed to be questioned, if ever there was something that needed to be brought to Jesus's attention, more times than not, it was Peter who did so. Peter was bold, he was a leader, he was impulsive, he was eager, he stuffed up so many times, but through it all, Jesus continued to bring, bring him closer. And eventually, after three years, he comes to this moment where he's in the upper room with Jesus and the other disciples. And they're sort of sitting around and you can begin to get this feeling that there's a climax point coming in Jesus's ministry. They've just outed a betrayer. He's got up, he's left, and then Jesus has communion and he begins to talk about his death. He begins to talk about this, this date that is arriving. And then afterwards, they leave and they go towards the Mount of Olives. And on this journey, the disciples begin to discuss, well, who's going to take over? Like Jesus is just talking about how everything's going to come to an end in his ministry and we're going to all go, who's going to be the leader? They, they, they begin discussing who among them is the greatest. And while this is happening, Jesus changes the mood entirely. After just having such a loving conversation, after just having such an intimate time with his disciples, he changes the conversation entirely. And in Matthew 26... Jesus begins in verse 31, it says, On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight all of you will, be, will desert me. Imagine coming from such an intimate time with Jesus, where only a select few could be part of. And then you're on this journey afterwards, and Jesus turns around and says, You'll all desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. And Peter declared, the ever rash and impulsive and eager Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. And you can imagine Peter, this spokesperson, this leader for the disciples, you can imagine potentially how how frustrated he was coming away from that. 
Like, how could Jesus think that I would deny him? Doesn't he know what I've gone through with him? Why would he say that I would desert him? And then just a few hours later, the soldiers come to take Jesus away. And Peter is the first one. You can tell this is still on his mind as if he has something to prove. As the soldiers come, Peter stands forward and he cuts an ear off a soldier. And I bet even just for an instant, he was so proud of himself. Like, look at that, Jesus. You thought I was going to desert you? Maybe while other disciples stepped back as the soldiers came, you thought that we would all leave you. But as they came, I stood firm in my faith. I, I, I cut an ear off a soldier. I could get arrested. I could die for that. See, I proved you wrong, Jesus. And the soldiers still take Jesus away and Peter tries to follow and they eventually go and meet before the council and Peter can't go in there and so he's stuck outside around a fire by himself. And he's with these guards and he's with these servant maids from the local houses and they're all standing around trying to keep warm. And then just a servant girl, just a mere servant girl comes up to him and says, aren't you the one that was with Jesus? And Peter denies it. And then another servant girl comes up, aren't you the one that was with Jesus? I'm sure you're one of the followers. And he denies it again. The same man who in front of Jesus stood firm in his faith and cut an ear off a soldier was the same man who twice denied Jesus to just a servant girl. And then another man comes up and in front of everyone, he says, I'm sure you're the one. I can tell by your accent. And Peter says, a curse on me if I am lying. I do not know the man. See, Peter had such confidence in his own abilities while he was with Jesus, but he was so unaware of his own weaknesses when he was alone. And sometimes we can get so caught up in our own abilities and our own confidence. And if there's one thing I have learned in my very short-lived life with all of my mistakes and all of my stuff-ups, if there's something you can take away from people in positions of fame who have fallen away from God, and we see so many of them recently, if there's something you can take away from this scenario with Peter, is that there is nothing more certainly that comes before a fall in a professing Christian than self-confidence. A welling up, a, a belief in your own abilities to overcome. To be able to stand firm based on what you can do and not based on what Jesus can do. There is nothing greater that precedes a fall than a welling up in our own self-confidence, in our own abilities to overcome trials and persecution. And Peter was so rash, so confident in his own abilities, so quick to draw a sword and cut the ear off a soldier, he became the same man who would deny Christ to a servant girl. So slippery is Satan that Peter missed it. So caught up in his own confidence, he missed the warnings. And if we take the same exchange to the book of Luke, you can see that Jesus even warned 
Peter what was going to happen. Jesus even predicted what was going to happen. Luke tells this story as happening a little bit earlier in the evening. Luke tells it as happening during the Last Supper. And they're all gathered around. And I know there's two different timelines of when this could could have happened, but could it be that this was such a momentous discussion that actually it occurred twice? Could it be that Jesus predicting that they would all desert them could have happened during the Last Supper and then again on the road to the Mount of Olives as these disciples try and figure out what did Jesus mean? But they're gathered around in the book of Luke for the Last Supper and they have communion and they have this intimate time of fellowship. They've all come so close to Jesus and then in the midst of it all in Luke chapter 22, Jesus again changes the tone and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. You can imagine the change of tone. You can imagine the compassion and and empathy that Jesus is uttering his, his name. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked. The use of the word asked is is interesting. That Satan would ask Jesus for permission. That, That Satan would seek you out and persist and request permission from Jesus. That Satan would so desire for you to fall in your faith, to 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 stumble, that he would ask Jesus for permission. It's a similar image to that of Job. In Job chapter 1 verse 6 when it says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Job chapter 2 verses 1 to 2 again has a similar reference. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. It's found again later on in Zechariah chapter 1 chapter 3 verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. Just the very idea can sometimes be forgotten that Satan would so desire to have you fall in your faith, that Satan would so desire for you to stumble that he would go back to the place he was kicked out of and request permission from the one who kicked him out that maybe, possibly, potentially, could he maybe sift one of his followers. It's a humbling thought to think that at times Satan can seem more eager to get into the presence of God than we can, especially during our busy seasons in life. I would hate to think that Satan is more eager to get into the presence of Jesus to accuse than I am to get into Jesus' presence to worship. 
But nonetheless, Satan goes back to Jesus to request permission to sift his followers. The idea of sifting is quite a simple one, although the process to get to sifting is very brutal and very unforgiving. In this biblical context, a farmer would gather a, a harvest and he would bring it to something known as a threshing floor and he would lay it down and he would beat it. Depending on the size of it, he might get his ox and he would trample it. The idea being to break apart the wheat, to, to separate the grain from the chaff. And then following this, he would go through something called a winnowing process where he would pretty much get a large garden fork and he would stab it and throw it in the air. The hope would be that the now separated pieces of wheat, the lighter chaff or stalk or husks, the parts that can't be used would be blown away in the wind and the parts that can be used, the, the grain that's a bit more heavier would fall back down to the threshing floor. And after doing this enough times, they will then scoop it up and place it into a bag and sell it. And so a family would come along and they would buy this bag of grain, but of course they can't use it yet because it's got dust and pebbles, it's got other types of seeds, it's got all this junk that they, that they also scooped up with it. And so what they would have to do is they would have to sift the wheat. And this was usually a woman's job, mainly because you had to multitask. And she would take the grain and she would place it on a large sieve. Just under a meter long, she would place the grain in the middle, she would slant it slightly, and she would give it sharp, violent shakes again and again and again, over and over for long periods of time. And three things would come from this. Number one, the smaller bits of dust and, and the, the parts that can't be used would fall through the sieve. And the lighter, bigger bits of husk, if there are any, or stalks left over or chaff left over, would be blown away because while also shaking it, she would be blowing heavily on top to blow away all the light pieces. And the aim is that the good grain would be gathered together in the center. And Satan's desire for Peter was to sift him as wheat. This last sifting process was a final step in separation, where you separate what you can use from what you can't use. And Satan's desire was to so agitate Peter, to sift him so much, to stir up things in his life that Peter had tried to hide. All that self-confidence that, that Satan wanted to bring to the surface, to use it so that hopefully, maybe, if Satan can agitate and shake him so much that in the midst of it being blown away, his faith might too blow. That maybe potentially if Satan can sift him for so long and so heavily that his faith would fall through the sieve. Satan's desire for every follower of Christ, if you're here and you call yourself a follower of Christ, is to put you through seasons of pressure. Seasons of sifting where it feels like your life is crumbling, where it th feels like things are being uprooted, things that you tried to keep hidden, things that you didn't want others to know, things that you thought you had overcome, things that you had thought you had gone past, and Satan puts you through seasons of pressure where all of a sudden everything starts falling apart. 
And maybe you're here and you're in that season now. Maybe you've gone through that season before and you managed to overcome. But maybe you're sitting here and what was meant to be a, a Christmas happy season of rest and relaxation when you could remember the birth of our Lord Jesus was actually a time of brokenness. It was actually a time of, of thinking about all the things that still had yet to be answered. All the prayers you were still praying that you were still waiting on. Children who hadn't come home. Families that are still broken. Still separated. Maybe it was a time of arguments, intense conversations. Maybe your Christmas period was a time of loneliness. And you're wondering, where's God in all of this? Where's God in this sifting? Peter was all alone by himself being sifted. He wasn't in front of Jesus. He wasn't with the other disciples. He was alone and he was being sifted. And there's so many people who are going through a quiet sifting and no one else knows about it. The brokenness and pain and hurt. And you put on a mask and come to church and then leave and go home broken. Sometimes the sifting can become so much and go on for so long. And we wonder if God is really here. Does God really hear our prayers? But Jesus didn't finish there. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. And there's someone here who needs to hear that. In the midst of your chaos and your hurt and your brokenness, Jesus prays for you. But I prayed for you. Not that all would be well, not that everything would disappear, not that you'd go back to your comfortable life, not that, that everything would be well, but I prayed that your faith would survive. That in the midst of Satan sifting your life, in the midst of chaos and brokenness and hurt and pain, your faith would stand firm. Jesus allowed Peter to go through a season of sifting, of failure and mistakes and brokenness so that he could be refined. You can go through failures, you can mess up, you can stuff up, you can make mistakes, but your faith doesn't have to. You can have your life crumble and fall apart, but your faith doesn't have to. What Peter didn't realize is that while he was being sifted, while Satan was trying to agitate and hurt and break, Jesus was using that same, that same sifting process to refine. And so while Satan was trying to break Peter down, Jesus was trying to separate Peter. Jesus was trying to separate what he can use from what he can't use. And so Peter relied so heavily on himself, had so much of his own confidence. And Jesus was saying, in order for me to take you from where you are into the calling I have for you, there are some things that I need to refine. And so I'm going to allow Satan to sift you so that I can bring out of you the things that I want, the things that I can use. 
Peter had such confidence in his own abilities and yet he was so unaware of his own weaknesses. And so Jesus used this threshing floor sifting as a way for him to separate the things he could use from the traits he couldn't. Peter went into that moment overconfident and trusting in his own strength. He left the sifting process with an understanding that while his spirit may be willing, his flesh was weak. Now that he understood how easy it is to fall, Peter would have compassion and mercy for others while helping them avoid that very same mistake. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you, to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I don't have three points to the sermon. I don't have one line at the end to take away. I just want to unpack this verse. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The perspective that could change in your situation if just we understood this, these two verses. And then the last part. And when you have turned back to me, strengthen your brothers. When you have found your way back, Simon, when you have repented and been restored, strengthen those around you. This might, in fact, be the hardest challenge, especially in a culture of Christianity where we don't talk about our trials, we keep them to ourselves, and when we're through that season, we don't want to remember it, the last thing we want to do is to sit down and talk with other people to strengthen our brothers and sisters. We're so quick to move on from hardships and trials where we don't want people to see that our life is crumbling, things are falling apart. Jesus is saying, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. Don't be so quick to forget your own sins, but use it as a chance Use it as a chance to help others who are going through something similar. Scripture says, what you go through in the darkness, you will proclaim in the light. We have this culture of Christianity of quiet sifting, and the only person that benefits is Satan. If he can turn your life upside down, sift you for long periods of time and you're not open to talk to anyone about it and you're not open to get help about it, the only person it benefits is himself. And if you think you can do it on your own like Peter, the only thing it will lead to is your downfall. No wonder we have so many young people who are turning away from God, who leave home, experience the real world and are hit with so much, but they're not used to talking about it and so their first response is to walk away, to turn their back. And so while Jesus warned the other disciples, 
While Jesus said, hey, hey, everyone, Satan is after you to sift you as wheat. He didn't just warn Peter. He warned the rest of the disciples that Satan would be after him. But for Peter, he allowed him. Not only did he warn him, he predicted that he would fail for this very reason. To show that even if you fail and mess up and stuff up and make mistakes, you can still come back to Jesus. Peter needed to understand, and he's a prime example for us, that there's always a road to restoration. But something needs to change in our culture, that we would be willing to be strengthened. I'm going to close with this story. I'm going to invite the music team to come up. There's this uh, tree in this Auckland forest, right? And if you're a hiker, if you've gone on hikes before, if you might have seen the signs for the Cody dieback disease. And um, pretty much it originated from this study that they did years ago now, um, based in the Auckland forest. And one day these two scientists were uh, walking along and they come across this stump and it pretty much completely stumped them, for lack of a better word. But they're walking along and they see this stump and it's showing signs of life. And I'm not a scientist, I don't understand too much about very like anything really, but they, they pretty much, trees need food. Right, and they, they get through food through um, eating carbohydrates and getting sugars through their leaves, through the green stuff. And so obviously if you have a stump with no green fo foliage, it's pretty hard for the tree to feed. And so they looked at the stump and they realized that somehow it was still showing signs of life. That even though it had been chopped down, there was some way it was still living. And so they started doing these tests on it and what they found was that unlike most other trees, a Cody's roots will intertwine with neighboring Cody trees to share nutrients. Essentially, a Cody tree will hold hands beneath the earth, sharing water and nutrients through an interconnected system. What they concluded was that when this tree was alive and well, when it was tall, when everything was going good, it connected its roots with nearby trees so that it could share its nutrients and it could also receive nutrients. But then for whatever reason, along came someone who wanted to chop that tree down. And by all appearances, it looked dead. But what that person didn't realize when he brought that tree down was that it was connected to a source of life that wasn't determined by what it looked like. It wasn't determined by what that tree felt like that it was connected to something greater that could feed it, even, um, even amongst the chaos, even amongst the brokenness. And if there's one thing we need, it's to get connected. So that when life hits you, when you're going through seasons of sifting, you have people around you who can speak life into you who can strengthen you. Like I said, the greatest benefit to going through a quiet sifting is, is only for Satan. But if we can get connected, if we can, even when life is well, get people among us who can strengthen us, 
if we can get around people who we can strengthen, that when we go through trials and we're strengthened, we can then impart what we went through so that we don't have these young people going through trials of tribulations and hurt and pain and brokenness alone. Unable to talk to anyone. And if there's one New Year's resolution that I would encourage everyone to do would be to get connected. I don't want to push a church agenda, but man, connect groups are good. If you can get alongside people who and go through life with them and talk and be real, even if all is well, even if everyone's just having a good time, if you can strengthen your roots, then when Satan comes along to sift, when Satan comes along to disrupt and hurt and cause things to shake and fall apart, you already have an interconnected system of people who can feed Scripture into your situation, who can speak Jesus into your life. Get connected. Strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your sisters. We're not designed to do life alone. The very nature of God is community. If you're taking nothing else away from this three point, four point, whatever many points I got to, make sure this year you have people around you who can strengthen you. This is great, coming to church, but how many people just come and leave without any connection? How many people here go home broken and alone, going through trials that no one else knows about? you've taken nothing else away take this get connected thanks for listening if you'd like to know more about our faith community feel free to visit our website gatewaychurch.org.nz